Please stand for the reading of God's word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. can take a seat. I want to start this morning with a word of prayer, and particularly, I'd like to pray um, for, I'd like to pray for people, the people, and particularly the believers in Afghanistan. So if you'd pray with me this morning. Lord, um, we come before you this morning with humble and heavy hearts as we hear reports and we see, uh, read news clippings of what is happening in this past week or so in Afghanistan. Lord, I honestly don't even know where to start in praying for that country and for the people in it, for the evil that is spreading rapidly. Lord, we know that you're sovereign. We know that you work things out in a way that, that often we can't understand. And, and you proved that even in Afghanistan when you took horrible events from 20 years ago and for two decades opened up a country to the gospel in a way that it hadn't been opened before and, and turned it into a place that was a, a spiritual desert for y- your word and has become one of the fastest growing uh, Places, places where the church is growing fastest in the, in the entire world. And we're we're sad and we shouldn't be surprised maybe that persecution has fallen onto a place where the gospel is growing so quickly because we know that we have an enemy who is seeking to use the powers of this world to... Uh, steal, kill, and destroy your people. So Lord, we pray most of all for the believers in Afghanistan. We pray protection for them. We pray boldness, even in the face of persecution. We pray uh, that they would uh, find confidence and hope uh, more and more deeply into um, in you and in your word. Lord, we pray against the, the evil that 
the evils that are happening there, we pray that you would put a stop to, to those things. Things that I, I don't even want to speak, I don't even want to think about. Lord, we pray most of all for protection for your people. Pray for the gospel to continue to spread even in the midst of persecution. We pray that as your, as your people stay, that they'd be, again, protected and would continue to proclaim the gospel. And as your people uh, flee, that's what you lead them to do as they flee, that they would spread the gospel in the places that they go. Lord, just as in Acts, when, when persecution fell upon Jerusalem and your people were scattered and they went wherever they went, they shared the gospel. I pray that that would happen again and that, uh, and that what Satan intended for evil, what Satan intended to do damage to the church, that, that it would spread the gospel and it would grow the church and it would advance your kingdom even more than, than ever before because we know that, that the gates of hell cannot stand against the church that you were building. You said you would build your church. We trust you in the ways that you want to do that. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, I, uh, we've been going through Romans, and as I told you last week, we're going to take a break for five weeks. We're going to slowly move through Matthew 18. So it's going to be a little different than the pace that we tend to typically uh, keep. We're going to take everything in uh, Matthew 18 in a little bit smaller chunks, if you will. And in particular, I want to look at Matthew 18 through the lenses, through the um, through a certain set of application lenses, if you will. And certainly, Matthew 18 is more is about more than just this, but I think it significantly touches on it and is relevant to us, and, and, and that is conflict within the church, conflict within God's kingdom. It turns out, it turns out that sometimes there's conflict in the church. What? No. I think for whatever reason, we often have this unconscious assumption that in the church, everyone will get along. Everyone knows and loves Jesus, and Jesus is so great, and that's true. And yet we have this assumption that everyone then will get along, and no one will ever disagree. And then when conflict happens, we're shocked and appalled that it's happening in the church, and shock becomes disgust, and disgust becomes cynicism, Cynicism becomes jaded hearts. And then I think what happens is we, it's something that Satan uses so that we miss out on God's plan and purpose for conflict in his church. What? God's plan and purpose for conflict in his church? What do you mean? It can't possibly be God's plan and purpose to have conflict in the church. Well, I'm not so sure. What if, may I propose to you, what if the terrible conflicts and conflicts in the church are not good in and of themselves, 
What if these terrible conflicts that you experience, that you've experienced, that you've seen in the church are actually part of God's plan, just as his son's terrible death was part of his plan as well? In the book, Pursuing Peace, the author presents three biblical perspectives on conflict, and I think they're helpful, and I'd like to share them as we kind of start this series first. He says that conflicts are inevitable, so we should expect them. They're inevitable because we are sinful. I am sinful. You are sinful. I don't know if you knew that. People around you, if you want to just look around the room for a second, uh, 100% of the people you see are sinful, all right? Okay, so we know that. We all agree on that. Second, Conflicts are sinful, so we should resolve them. We shouldn't just say, well, conflict happens, you know, what a, you know it's just kind of a, a moral neutral. No, they, they are sinful, and so we ought to resolve them. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about why we should care that conflicts are resolved. We're going to talk about some, some ways that we ought to go about resolving conflicts. But understand this, conflicts do not resolve themselves. If there's one thing I've learned in 15 years of pastoral ministry, conflicts, even conflicts in the church, don't magically go away. It's not like you ignore them and then they cease to exist. It takes action on our part. A third, conflicts are opportunities. Therefore, seize them. Turns out that God saves us into a community, into a family, into a church filled with other believers who he's also saved into that community. Believers who still have indwelling sin in them. And that's not because it's his only option. I think being in community with other people with whom we will still have conflict is actually part of God's design for his people on earth until he returns. Now, certainly there's different personalities amongst us, mannerisms, uh, values, etc. And sometimes those things can seem abrasive to us, right? Someone else, I'm sure there's someone else, even maybe sitting here right now, who's something about them is touch abrasive to you. If I can use that term. They, there's something that is bothersome to you about them, something that's maybe frustrating or annoying. But it's not all quirks of personality. Like we still sin. Sin is an, an enormous Part of this, whether we're talking about the sin of what we do, the person who is annoying does, or whether it's the sin in our hearts as we respond to those things that are annoying, but maybe not sinful. Have you ever, have you ever had like a, a little tiny metal splinter? You ever had one of those little metal splinters? It's like this tiny little shard of metal gets in your finger. You know what I'm talking about? No. Stephen's like, no, I don't do that kind of stuff. No, <laughs> I don't do things that would create that problem. No, you get this tiny little, I was, I was uh, setting up a, 
the ladder anyway, I was going to paint, whatever, it doesn't matter. But I got this tiny little metal splinter in my finger this week. And the weirdest thing about these tiny little metal splinters is they're so small that, that they can be there and you cannot feel that they're there at all until your finger runs up against something, until your finger rubs up against something. And then those suckers hurt so bad. I mean, you're like, I didn't even know that was there. And now all of a sudden my finger is throbbing. And then, and then you stop touching it and it doesn't hurt so bad anymore. And then you rub it up against something and you're like, oh my goodness, it feels like someone's cutting my finger off, right? Okay, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it hurts. It hurts. What I want you to know, church, is God has saved you. He's turned your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh, it still has little sin splinters in it, if you will. And God intends to get rid of those things. And oftentimes, in his providence, one of the ways that he does that is by putting us in community with other people who will rub up against those things. We don't realize that they're there. We may not see them at first. We may go years without even recognizing that that little sin splinter, that little shard is in our heart until the right person in the right situation causes something to rub up against them. And then you're like, oh my goodness, what is going on right now? I'm super ticked at this person. Oftentimes, it may be their sin, but oftentimes it's actually indicating sin in our own heart. Something that we need to examine. Now, you may say, well, Cody, I don't, man, that, I, I've been in those situations. That hurts. I don't think it's worth it for the sanctification that it may bring. And I think what God is saying to us is, I don't think you realize what sanctification is worth. I don't think you realize what it's worth to go through in order to remove those sins from your heart. I think we don't value the right things. We don't weigh things on the scale that God weighs them. For God, it's worth it. The God of the universe who created us, who knows us, he will stop at nothing to make us like his son. We'll talk more about that next week. But suffice it to say for now, you weren't saved merely to be saved. You were saved to be sanctified. You were saved to become like the one who saved you. And as a side note to that, I want us to understand that that won't happen very effectively if, one, you restrict those close to you to only the easy and safe people, okay? Two, you don't commit to belonging to a church, right? Part of that commitment to a group of people 
It's necessary because otherwise, if you don't first commit, otherwise, once the people around you who you think are safe and easy turn out to not be so safe and so easy, you will run from that because it's, well, it's easier. It's more comfortable. It's more convenient to us. We miss out on an opportunity. So there's a commitment that is necessary. While we can't excuse sinful conflict in the local church, we also can't use it to excuse our sin of not belonging in a local church. And third, that sanctification won't happen if you always start with the assumption that the problem is the other person. Too often the basis for our shock with church conflict that we see and we experience is that we assume that everyone ought to think how we think, everyone ought to to do what we do, and everyone ought to care about the things that we care about. And when they don't, what in the world is happening? What is wrong with these people, right? We're frustrated and we become jaded because deep down what we are actually thinking, but we don't allow ourselves to realize is we're thinking, I'm better than these people. Don't they know that I know the right way? Why won't they get on board with me? Whether we realize it or not, we make ourselves the center of the universe. Everything revolves around me and my genius. I'm the only one who really truly gets it. Our tendency is to be man-centered rather than God-centered. The essence, not just of resolving conflict, but the essence of, of life in God's kingdom, of life with his people, of life in the church, is that God, not you or me, is at the center of it, that he is what's most important, that everything is to bring him glory, not to bring me glory. And so it brings us to kind of the point of this message this morning, and it's this, the crucial quality for a Christian is humility, crucial quality for a Christian is humility. Trying to ramp up this tension that I imagine is causing you a little angst in your heart because we, we all tend towards pride. We all tend towards selfishness. There's, I don't know that there's any sermon that we want to hear less than a sermon about humility, right? Because it strikes at the very core of our sinful nature. And frankly, I don't know that I'm the, the best person to preach a sermon on humility because I'll, I'll share just a little bit of humility here. I'm not sure I'm so good at it. But I'm going to try. And we're going to depend on God's word and not me. 
So Matthew 18, and it's going to give us some basic handles for dealing with conflict as, we, as it just frankly talks about what it looks like to live life in God's kingdom. We're going to see that the crucial goal of conflict is holiness, is, is the crucial goal of really everything, to, to, to please God in, in who we are and what we do. The crucial motivator is our responsibility to one another as fellow believers, that the crucial conflict the crucial conversation that needs to happen is, is the way in which we confront one another, and in, indeed that we even do that in the first place, and then that the crucial response is forgiveness. So we're going to talk about those things over the next few weeks, but I'm afraid that none of those things will matter much unless we undergird them, unless the foundation for all of them is what we're going to talk about today, humility. We will not do well in progressing towards true holiness. We may look good on the outside, but we won't progress towards true holiness unless humility is involved, right? We'll struggle to have a conversation, a confrontation with someone over whatever without humility. Probably won't go well. We'll struggle to forgive without humility. We'll struggle to feel the responsibility that we have for our fellow believers whom we're in committed community with. If we struggle with humility, we'll tend towards selfishness instead. And so humility becomes this really, really important, this really crucial quality that should exist in us and in the body of Christ. And so the question is, what is humility? What is humility? Matthew doesn't record it in this passage, but, but in the other gospels, when it talks about this exchange that happens that Paul read earlier, what we find is that the com- there's a conversation that's happening right before Jesus says these words, right before Jesus brings this child in the midst of the disciples. And it's a conversation that happens as they're walking along the road. And and, and I guess my assumption is maybe the disciples are kind of like hanging back a little bit. You know, Jesus is walking and they kind of do that slow walk. And slowly there's kind of like this distance that happens. And it's like, oh, Jesus, we're still following you. But really they're kind of creating this separation so that they can have this conversation between them about who is the greatest amongst them. It's interesting because it follows uh, shortly after this situation where Peter, James, and John actually go with Jesus and, and they have this experience on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is like transformed and Moses and Elijah there is magnificent. And then Jesus is like, hey, hey, don't talk about this right now. But I can imagine what's going on in Peter, James, and John. And this is a little bit of my speculation, so just stick with me for a second. I can imagine if I was one of them and I experienced that, I couldn't talk about it though, but I would still want to argue based off of that, that, well, well, if I could just tell you what I got to be privy to, you would then realize that we are greater than you. That we, we are the best disciples because Jesus brought us up there, right? It's our natural tendency to compare ourselves to one another, to try to jockey for position and status and for authority. And so this question comes up, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But Jesus doesn't, he doesn't pull one of his disciples in the middle of the group and say, look, Peter is, look, James is, look, John is. He calls a child over. He puts the child in the midst of them. 
We may be accustomed today to people making their, ch- their children the center of their lives, but let me tell you, that's not the way it was in the first century, right? Children were not the center of the universe. I mean, at one point, the disciples even shoo the kids away from Jesus because they thought that Jesus couldn't be bothered with such insignificant interactions as talking to kids. But Jesus says, truly, I say to you. And when Jesus says, truly, it's kind of like, like, take note. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you something important here. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. Whoa, they ask him who's the greatest. And he says, unless you become like a child, not only are you not the greatest, but you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Like this kind of humility is necessary for entrance to be permitted in the first place. What, 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 is, what is this kind of humility? What is humility? In the Bible, humility can be kind of defined in two different ways. It can refer to a general lowness of status and economic means, so like an a, a earthly, physical kind of humility, right? Certainly that child would fit that bill, right? Lowness of status, economic means. It can also be a modest or sober self-perception, a modest or sober self-perception. The simile of like a child in this context is posed against this question, who is the greatest? So we've got to define, we've got to understand what he means by like a child within that context of the question, who is the greatest? When he says, be like a child, he's not referring to being like a child in terms of knowledge, like, hey, you, shouldn't, you should know less like a child knows less. Or, or even in terms of innocence in some way, well, this child hasn't sinned as much, they haven't, you know, whatever. I believe what Jesus is doing here is he's using the first definition, the obvious and the earthly to frame the second, what is deep and spiritual. In your heart, do you see yourself as more or less than your fellow believer? Does the world revolve around you? Or do you consider yourself with modesty? Imagine that child in the midst of the disciples, he cares nothing for how he stacks up to the disciples that are surrounding him. I bet the only thing he cares about is he is in the presence of Jesus Christ. Perhaps Paul gives the clearest definition in Philippians 2, 3 through 5. He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is not only the example of this kind of humility, he actually makes it possible for it to exist in us. 
Humility, as Jesus is talking about, isn't so much about your position in comparison to others, but the posture of your heart towards others and then how that then is lived out in your life. This is how Jesus' own humility is described. As I was saying, in the immediate context of Matthew 17, what we see is we see Jesus at the transfiguration, right? And his face is shining like the sun and his clothes are white as light. And the father himself speaks and says, this is my beloved son. And then we see the disciples unable to heal a boy, but Jesus comes up and he rebukes the demon. And then he rebukes his disciples for not having enough faith. Then we see Jesus, this is my favorite. You see Jesus challenged on whether he's going to pay the temple tax or not, right? And he says, Look, I have the authority not to pay this because I'm God's son. The son doesn't have to pay. But for the sake of them, I'll do it. But here's what's interesting. Look at the way he actually pays it. He tells Peter to go drop a line in the sea, right? He drops the line in the sea, pulls up a fish, and the fish has just enough money for Jesus and for Peter to pay the tax. It's as if Jesus is saying, even in the method that he pays, even in the method that he chooses to humble, humbly submit to this request of him paying the temple tax, he says, I am the authority still. Not only am I the authority over the temple and the religious establishment, I am the authority over the fish of the sea. I'm the authority over everything. I can tell you to put a a line in the water, and you'll pull up a fish with two coins in it. That's how much I'm in authority here. You might think Jesus declaring himself as the authority over all creation doesn't seem very humble. But actually, actually, that's the exact right sober assessment of Jesus For him to claim otherwise would be false humility. For him to claim otherwise would be bearing false witness, right? For him to say otherwise, other than I am the authority over everything, would be Jesus lying. You see, humility is not then a lack of confidence or a lack of ambition or a lack of power or a lack of position. Jesus had all of those things and in abundance. His ambition was to save all that God would give him. Like, that's pretty ambitious, right? He was confident that he would do it. He had all the power to heal. He had all the position, God declaring him, this is my son. And Jesus had all those things, and yet, yeah, he was humble. And so I, I propose to you this definition for Christian humility, and you can take it or leave it. It's my definition. I'm not saying it's good, so this is me being humble. But it's my best effort. Christian humility is a quality of heart and action, a quality of heart and action that receives what God gives us and rightly uses it in the service of others for the sake of Christ. It's a quality of, of heart. It's both about your heart, your motivations, how, how, what you actually 
believe and think in here, and then also how you live it out out here. It's heart and action, and it receives what God gives us, whether it's a low position or a high position, whether it's a, not a, a lot of authority or, or a lot of authority, whether it's a lot of something, a lot of gifts, a lot of whatever ability, whatever it is, or whether it's very little of it, it receives whatever God gives and says, I'm going to use this in the service of others for the sake of Christ. That's Christian humility. And so why does humility matter in Christian community? Well, there's two major points I want to draw out here. Why, why, this, why humility is such a crucial quality. First, humility is the soil for the roots of salvation. It's the soil for the roots of salvation. And then second, humility is the school for the reign of exaltation. All right, so stick with me here. Philippians 2 continues says, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not consider, or he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was from the soil of the humble character of our Savior that the fruit of salvation grew. The cross itself was rooted in the humility of Christ. It was necessary for Jesus to not only be God, but to also humble himself and be man. Humility was a prerequisite. Similarly, humility is a prerequisite to his saving work being applied to us. Jesus says in this passage, unless you turn and become children, right, you will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Repentance and faith in Christ takes humility. You will not find someone who repents and puts their trust actually in Jesus without being humble. It's impossible, right? Because as long as we are proud, as long as we think we can do it, as long as we think things are about us, we won't repent. We won't trust Christ. We must recognize our absolute need for a savior. We must recognize our absolute inability to save ourselves. There is only the humility of the gospel and the pride of self-righteousness. Those are the only two options. You know, whether that self-righteousness is you trying to be good enough to live up to some standard to save yourself, or whether that self-righteousness is one that denies that the creator exists and believes that the world revolves around creation rather than the one who created and sustains it. Either way, that's self-righteousness. And so humility is the soil for the roots of salvation. But, but it's not only that, it's also the school for the reign of exaltation. Let me explain this. Though Christ remains humble in heart, he didn't stay in a humbled position, in a humbled state, did he? Christ's humility was also a precursor for him being exalted. Philippians 2, it continues in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, because he humbled himself even to death on the cross. 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the na- at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The son's role was to submit himself to the Father in humility. It was the Father's role to exalt him. Exalt the Son so that every knee would bow to him. But just as his humility resulted in our salvation, and so we humble ourselves too, his exaltation means that when we are saved, he will also exalt us. Peter, speaking both to the elders of the church and those to whom he calls, uh, and, and to the church in general, he, he says, um, in 1 Peter 5, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he might exalt you. At the proper time, when God decides, he might exalt you. You see, Christ's humility was revealed in his suffering. Christ's humility was revealed in his submission to God. And his trust that the Father would exalt him at the right time. And for us, the humility isn't merely revealed because, let's be honest, we tend to not be very humble. For us, the humility is produced. For us, suffering, submission, sacrifice in this world produces, it schools us in the kind of humility that Christ has. So that as 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, endure what? Endure suffering, endure this life, we will also reign with him, with Jesus. Trials that we endure are to produce the humility of our king in us so that we can reign with him. But but I want to clarify something real quick. You see, Peter, Peter tells us not only that we should clothe ourselves or, or, or bind ourselves with humility, that's what the, the word means, clothe ourselves, bind ourselves with humility, that our humility toward one another ought to be evident, right? But this humility isn't mere deference. I think sometimes we think of humility as just uh, like saying, hey, I think this, but I'll just defer to you because I'm so humble. I just want to be humble right now. And so like, you know, I'll defer to you on it. We know that it can't be that. It can't be merely that because he's just commanded in that passage in 1 Peter 5, he's just commanded younger believers to submit to or to have deference towards their elders. But here, then, he commands everyone, young believers, old believers, elders, non-elders, all of them to be humble towards one another. So while humility may result in deference when it makes sense for you to defer, Deference may not always represent humility. Often, oftentimes when someone is hmm, seeking to be humble, maybe they have good motives, maybe they don't, I don't know, but, but either way, when they're seeking to be humble and they say something like, oh, no, 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 you lead, no, you decide, no, you take charge, no, you whatever, 
oftentimes that kind of deference can be a disguise for selfishness. It can be a disguise for pride because I don't want to take on the responsibility. I don't want to take on and utilize what God has actually given me because it's going to be hard. Because someone might not like it. Because it may be tiring. Because people may be critical. Because I just don't want to lead. I don't want to have to decide today. But that's not how Christ was. His humility actually led him to say the thing that needs to be said, to do the thing that needs to be done, to go to the cross. God put him in charge and he appropriated that authority to serve others. And so our definition of humility was a quality of heart and action that receives what God gives us and rightly uses it in the service of others for the sake of Christ. Sometimes our dissatisfaction isn't that God doesn't give us enough position or power or authority or status or whatever. Sometimes our dissatisfaction is he's given us more than we really want to actually handle. Can I have a little less today, God? Can I not matter so much in this situation so I don't have to like go through that? Can I just go off the grid for a little bit, right? I don't know if you've ever wanted to just, can I just be off the grid? No one's bothering me. No one's asking anything of me. I just got to take care of me, myself, and I. Sometimes the most humble thing you can do, if it's where God has positioned you, is to put yourself in your reputation and, and, and to put yourself on the line. To lead where God has commanded you to lead, to defend the truth where he's commanded you to defend it, to bring someone back from sin, but the heart in it is not self-advancement, it's not self-promotion, it's the glory of God and the good of his church. And the way we go about it ought to reflect that. And so why does humility matter in Christian conflict? Here we've come to the application. The disciples had been in conflict with one another, right? Who was the greatest? No, I'm the greatest. No, you're the greatest. No, I kind of wonder how that vote panned out. Like if everyone just voted for themselves, I bet Judas is the one that voted for someone else. The only one. False humility. Anyway. They'd been in conflict with each other. And I'm sure they probably could have justified their arguments by appealing to their desire to do what was best for the kingdom. I just want to be great for God. The heart of the disciples, though, wasn't for the advancement of God's kingdom. It wasn't for the mutual benefit of the community. It wasn't for assisting Jesus in his ministry. Their hearts were concerned for their own position at the expense of others, and it fueled the conflict. Understand this, guys. If you are for yourself, you cannot be for God's kingdom. And as much as you are for yourself, you are not for God's kingdom. If you're for your glory, you can't be for God's. And so James 4, it says it like this. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You, a- you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's a matter of, of behavior and motivations. Of, it's a quality of heart and action. And then verse 10, it ends, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do you trust that if you humble yourself, before God, that God will exalt you when and where and how he wants to exalt you? Or do you feel the need to get that for yourself? You see, without humility, we're hamstrung from the start. We will seek in conflict something different than the holiness of other people in ourselves. We will seek to serve others, ourselves rather, Rather than serving the body of Christ and his sons and daughters, we'll seek to confront conflict in the way that appeases us, either avoiding for our own comfort or domineering because we need to control, rather than obeying and leaving the result to God. In the end, we will be slow to forgive. We will be slow to seek forgiveness because we feel entitled to something that is frankly born and out of our pride. And giving forgiveness and even seeking forgiveness is a humiliating process. Can we trust conflict? Can we approach conflict, I mean, with humility, trusting? Are you trusting God with it? Here's here's a few questions. Here's a few questions I want you to write down. And when, when you approach conflict, when you approach a conflict in your life, I want you to ask yourself these questions. I want you to allow these questions to be uh, self-evaluative, if you will. Just take some time in prayer to meditate on these questions. First, are you trusting God with it? Are you trusting God with the conflict? James 4 says, the fights come from our desire for things, either intangible or tangible things. If we don't trust God, we will be desperate in conflict to make sure that we get ours whatever ours is for you, rather than trusting him to give us what we need. The second question that I want you to use as you evaluate your own heart to test for humility as you go into conflict, are you submitted to scripture? Are you submitted to whatever the Bible says, that's what I'm going to do? James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. That's our response when we're not humble. If you start with the attitude, I'm right, it becomes very easy to kind of warp and twist scripture to to match your goals, right? But if you start with the attitude of, I I want to be right in the face of God, then you'll come to scripture with much more unbiased approach. You'll come to scripture with the mindset of allowing scripture to correct you if need be. That's hard sometimes. Sometimes it's easy when it kind of, you know, I kind of wanted to do that or I was like, whatever, what, God, what do you want me to do? But sometimes I don't want to do what God wants me to do. And when scripture smacks me in the face, man, it's tough to go, okay, I'm going to submit to that. Third question is this. Have you truly stopped and examined your own heart and motivations? 
examined yourself. Have you really stopped to look into your own heart and to go, what am I wanting? What am I trying to get? What, why is this so difficult for me? Why is this so bothersome to me? Conflict produces in us our most diligent and specific examinations of the other party, right? Like you never examine someone else's life so much as when you become in conflict with them. And then all of a sudden you just are nitpicking every little thing that they do, every little thing that they say. You're just, you're taking it and you're breaking it down and you're unfolding it way more than it actually is. And you just got all these different nuances that you suddenly have discovered. All these motivations that you suddenly know magically. Once you're in conflict with someone, you just know their heart. It's like, what if you took all of that examination of that person and you turned it on yourself? What if God's purpose is for you to nitpick your heart where you could actually know your motivations, where God would actually reveal those things to you? Where, where even in that conflict, the, and let's just be honest, every conflict, it, it, there's two people that have a problem in it, right? Rarely is there a conflict that's 100% one person, okay? But even in the conflicts where it's 90% the other person, where an objective evaluation would go, that's 90% that person, you still have 10% of a heart that needs to be adjusted. And that should be your primary concern. James says, make sure your, our hands, our hands are clean. Make sure your hands are clean. Make sure your hands or your hearts are pure. Make sure that your mind isn't double-minded. Make sure that you aren't saying one thing, but thinking and believing another thing. Look, there, I think there's much we can learn from Christians throughout history. And a lot of times that I like to uh, tell just short snippets of people's lives through Christian history, pastors, preachers, theologians, different people, missionaries, people have done amazing things for God. How they followed Christ and how God has worked through them and it's encouraging and it's helpful. It frames things in our time when we look at what's going on in another person's time, right? It frames things in our life when we can look at someone else's life. But as great as God has worked through so many people, everyone is flawed, right? And we have to be honest about the flaws that exist even in the people that we look up to, even in the people whose shoulders we stand on in the faith. And I want to tell you one story as we conclude about that. George Whitfield. I don't know if you know George Whitfield, who he was. He was a legendary preacher. He was born in 1714, in the United Kingdom, he came to America, and he just fell in love with the Americas. He fell in love with the people. He fell in love with the land. He fell in love with, with everything about it. And most of all, he was in love with God. And he traveled up and down the colonies, preaching God's word, out, outdoors, indoors, wherever he could. Uh, his preaching... His preaching um, resulted in what, well, him and some other people, resulted in what we call the Great Awakening. This period of time where uh, both in the United Kingdom and in the United States, before it was the United States, 
People were far from God. A lot of people weren't following him. And yet, all of a sudden, through this, this, this time period of, and this amazing preaching of the gospel, uh, uh, droves of people came to Christ and lives were changed. Absolutely transformed the culture in Great Britain and in the colonies. And George Whitfield was one of the, the main uh, tools that God used to do this. He preached to tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. Droves of people came to Christ through his preaching. But what was most remarkable, probably, what was most unique about him is that he became known for preaching to slaves. He became known for preaching to blacks in a time when they were not preached to. People claimed that these slaves didn't have souls, and so we need not evangelize them. But George Whitfield said, no. No, they do, and we are required. And if the slave masters want to come and whip me, they can come and whip me, but I'm going to preach Christ to them. And that's what he did. From Philadelphia to Georgia, he had a massive impact on the entire black community in the colonies. He fought for their well-treatment through his preaching and his work and his petition. Uh, black people were educated for the first time in a lot of places. When he died, they say he was mourned more by black communities than anyone else. Than anyone else was. And yet, and yet he owned slaves. And yet he petitioned for Georgia to be a colony solely so that there could be slaves in the Georgia colony. And he justified it by saying, well, we, then we could operate our orphanage on much less cost. And we could care for so many more orphan children if we could just have slaves in Georgia. The point I'm making is this. You are wrong about something. You are wrong about something. You might, be, you might not be wrong about that thing, whatever that thing is, but you're wrong about something. And it might be that thing. So humble yourself to the reality that we all miss things sometimes. That we get things wrong sometimes. Whitfield wasn't totally wrong. Whitfield was, we would say, by and large, right on the vast majority of things in his theology and in his life. We would be, if our children grew up to be Whitfields in their character and in uh, their service to God, we would be proud. We would cry tears of joy. Yeah, he was dreadfully wrong on one point. And truthfully, if he was born a generation later, he probably would have been an abolitionist. But he wasn't. He was flawed. He was blinded in that area. And so are we. And so let's humble ourselves as we come into Christian community. Let's humble ourselves as we come into conflict with one another and allow God to use that in our lives. Spurgeon said this, and I'll end with this quote. Charles Spurgeon, another great preacher of history, he said, I remember an old countryman saying to me long ago, depend on it, my brother. 
If we ever get one inch above the ground, we get just that inch too high. I believe it is so. Flat on our faces before the cross of Christ is the place for us, realizing that we are nothing and that Jesus Christ is everything. So that's what I'd ask you to do this morning as we come to communion, as we come to this time of remembering the cross of Christ, that you would put your face flat before the cross, flat before our Savior in humility, realizing that everything we have is from him. Realizing that everything we do is for him. Realizing that one day we will see him face to face and we will be exalted and glorified just as he is. Let's pray. Lord, when we all come in here with different conflicts and different issues, things that that we have going on, and I'm not any exception to that. I have things that frustrate me. Too much, I know. Lord, I'm so resistant, we are so resistant to humility that oftentimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're humble when in actuality we are not. easy to act humble when we agree with things. The true nature of our humility comes out when we disagree with things. Lord, would you help us to have that quality of heart and that quality of action? Would you help us to receive what it is that you've given us and to use it for the sake of others or or for the service of others and for the sake of of you, Jesus Christ. May your word guide us in how we ought to do that. Lord, would you humble us where uh, we need to be humbled? Would we have right meekness and right boldness? Would we learn when to keep quiet and when to speak up? Would we learn when to be slow to act, and when to respond. Lord, I continue to think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. How humbling it must be to to leave everything you have, to hide in a cave, to, to flee, to beg for a ticket on a plane, to run with your wife and your children. To wonder how you ought to respond when such evil and violence is happening all around you and to you. Lord, I pray that you would give us and them guidance through your Holy Spirit on what to do. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.